0: com podcast. And here's your host, Ed McGrogan. Hi and welcome everyone to The Tennis.com podcast. I'm Ed McGrogan talking with Pete Boto. Um, I think everybody is just about into Olympic mode or shifting that way already. And um, today I, I wanted to kind of bat around really any sort of topics you know, we were thinking about as the games approach. The draw isn't until Thursday. Um, but I think people are certainly getting ready for uh the, the event and everything, of course, the players, most of them are headed right to London. A few exceptions. We'll get to that in a little bit actually. but uh, well why don't we get to it right now? Pete what you you just posted something talking about how Philip Kohlschreiber, you know, a good grass court player, entered this week in a clay event in Austria.
1: Yes, well, you know, of course, he's German. So is Florian Mayer. The top two seeds in this event are Florian Mayer and Philippe Kohlschreiber, who who were ranked within, who, right on top of each other, basically. Kohlschreiber one spot ahead. I believe he was number twenty one. Mayer was number two when they entered this event. That's changed a little bit now. But when they when the deadline came, there that that was their ranking. They're the only two guys inside the top forty who are in this tournament, and you know, basically, it's been gutted like the Los Angeles tournament. By a, by the Olympics Because people are taking a week off To prepare for the Olympics uh, I, I don't know what to make a Cole Schreiber's thing The funny thing is Mayer is not even playing the Olympics Cole Schreiber is Yet he's playing. I mean, this event in Kitzbühel is not even going to be over when the Olympics begin. So the idea of him then flying to London and getting onto grass and and, and hoping to win a match is kind of nutty. I mean, the only thing I can think is that, you know, these guys, maybe they're playing for the bragging rights to Germany because they're ranked so close together. And this is an ATP 250, but that's a lot of points, you know, uh, up for grabs because so many guys are skipping this because of the Olympics. The only guy in the Olympics for Germany is Kohlschreiber. You'd think that just out of a sense of, you know, giving Germany a shot, he wouldn't have played this event. So the only thing I can think of is that the appearance money in Austria, where, of course, you know, it's German-speaking land, etc., that the appearance money is, is just too good. They realize that they're up against the Olympics. they got to get some talent in there. they got some German boys who are always good in that part of the world. They like seeing Germans play. And, that, and then there's this other subtext, maybe, is that Meyer and Kohlschreiber jockeying for the number one ranking in Germany which has some implications in terms of their contracts and endorsement deals and things like that.
0: Well, the uh, I mean, the first—I'm just thinking from a practical standpoint, like what you're talking about, the, the first round of the, the games—and the schedule goes with the draws on Thursday. This is singles. Play begins Saturday and Sunday. I mean, the first round, I, I would almost think, would have to be concluded by the weekend there. So if you think about that and Cole Schreiber playing this event— he probably, in all honesty, could be forced to withdraw really if he goes far enough and you know wants to actually play in the games. There, it, it does seem like we're making, um, you know, to this does sound like a little, a, a sort of a little thing in the grand scheme of things. But it just it is such an odd decision for him to play. It's not even a grass event, of course. That you know, I think it was worth you know bringing up and everything like that beforehand.
1: Well, well, you know, uh, it's, it's an enormous slight to the Olympics. I mean, imagine if the guy withdraws from the Olympics because he's in the ATP 250 final of Kitzbühel. And I think this underscores something I'm going to address later this week, which is a little bit how tennis has, you know, gone on really kind of totally oblivious to the Olympics. I mean, you know, the guys who aren't playing, you know, uh, because they're getting prepared for the Olympics, theoretically, the Federer's, the Djokovic's, those guys, you know, they're, you know, they, they don't play anyway after Wimbledon. So it's not like they're making a special case for the Olympics. And I think some of these other people... People are really pushing their luck. Andy Roddick, I think, was pushing his luck. I wrote that for my ESPN uh, post today. It was that Andy Roddick is you know it's great that he won Atlanta. I think he's very happy. It's a good American tournament that's building up the game in the U.S. No problem with that. But boy, I mean, isn't he jeopardizing his
0: chances for the Olympics by by, by playing in that? It uh, you know it does seem like that, especially when you consider the surface there. That that's the big thing, and and for Roddick. I think the counterpoint to that is that Roddick has had such a difficult year overall that, um, you know, possibly the winning and the conference that breeds really kind of offsets any sort of um, practical discomforts and you know a, you know transition I guess from American hardcore to going back to England for the grass court that 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 to me is a little I'm not I'm not gonna hammerotic for that, I think. I, I don't think you are either, but I, I do think there's kind of a exception to be made in his case. And, and you know, the guys he beat this week, I have to say, is a, a pretty impressive bunch um, considering big servers, Fast hardcore, so I do, I do like what Roddick did this week. I will say, well, you know, kind he proved of, his, he,
1: you know, he showed his American big dog again.
0: <laughs> you know, there's there's never anything wrong with cleaning up your own backyard and making sure
1: that the pecking order is it is that it's supposed to be. And no, I am I'm, I'm I'm honestly I'm not really criticizing Roddick in this regard because I think he's in a tough situation with this, and I do think that it's important to support the American game too. But what I'm what I'm what I think is kind of interesting here is that really when you consider how much winning Wimbledon's meant to Roddick, look, it's it's no secret for years now. The idea for Rod, I think, in the back of every his own mind and everybody else's, was that man, if he gets that one Wimbledon title after three finals, plus the US Open title that he did win, you know, he's kind of... The, his ultimate career goal, I think, was to win Wimbledon ever since, you know, the ever since Roger Federer basically emerged as a great player that he is. So, you know, and, and this is – now, granted, this is not like a Wimbledon title. But, hey, a gold medal and grass at Wimbledon, an Olympic gold medal, that's about the next best thing to having won Wimbledon. So I, I'm, a, I'm a little bit surprised. It's not so much dis- – I mean, you know, everyone – Let them do what they want, but I'm a little bit surprised that Roddick would have chosen to play Atlanta. uh, You know, instead of saying, "You know what? I'm staying in England. I'm going to keep working on my grass court game. Give it a big shot at Wimbledon." Let's remember, at Wimbledon, there already every the pundits were already making up these uh, retirement scenarios, none of which I believe are true. But you know, Roddick's not going to have that many more Wimbledon's left. That's for sure.
0: No, that's actually what I was going to mention about Roddick and winning at Wimbledon, sort of despite not winning the tournament. Of course. not that I, not that I believe Roddick has a great chance, or you know, one of the best chances in the singles draw. But I, I honestly do think that his medal chances are pretty strong, assuming he is playing in the mixed as well. Which I believe it seems very likely. I think that him and Serena would play that. He's playing in doubles with John Isner. You know, when you play that best of three on grass with those two kind of servers, I don't think. I think any team, no matter how devoted they are, you know, double specialist teams, for example – that's a that's a hard opponent no matter the stakes there or the sets et cetera. So I think when you're thinking about a, a player like Roddick and, and his medal opportunities there if he's committed to all the events I think um, I think there's something to be won from there. I, I would almost be fairly surprised if he played all three if he didn't get a medal of some kind actually. It yeah really well de- you know I think that's that's a good point. I mean I think and, and look let's
1: face it. I, I like. I actually think his chances in singles in a best of three format is is pretty darn good. You know, all it takes is that one service breaker. You win that first set tiebreaker, and really, all
0: bets are off. Who knows? Yeah, and um, you know, since we're touching on mixed here, getting into that, I, I'm, when the when it was announced that mixed doubles was going to be a medal event in these Olympics, I was. Um, I was kind of turned off by the idea originally when that happened. And, and now that I kind of see really how it how it's put forth in practice here, um, I, I kind of am still thinking that way. I mean, if you think, of, if you look at what's what the event entails here, um, it's not a sixty-four player, sixty-four team really event like the singles. Um, it's a, it's actually very much smaller. Than that sixteen teams only. So, um, you know, you're you're only playing really four rounds um, to win to get two. If you win two matches, you're into the you're into metal matches at that point. Actually, um, you know, I think about when you consider what it takes to win a gold medal, I think in the other events, this and is it's a super tiebreaker, right? Ed? I'm pretty sure it is. Um, I can't, I can't confirm that. I, I'm just not, uh, I can confirm
1: it. It's a super tiebreaker for instead okay. of a third set.
0: It's, you know, to me, it's one of those, I think gold medal devaluing events. Really? Honestly, I think what, you know, I think, a nicer idea may have been, and the Olympics have done this in the past, is they have these demonstration events. This is actually where tennis was at one point, despite it being one of the original events back in Athens. Tennis has kind of been shifted around the games, put in various um, you know spots of prestige. But I just think for a mixed event like this, when you're when you're really distilling the field down to just almost like a crapshoot in a way. And I think they do that because the schedule really restricts how many matches of tennis players can enter, especially these players that are going to be playing singles, doubles, mixed you know, I like the dual gender aspect of the mixed tournament. I just don't think the execution is very good. But w- that'll be seen this week.
1: I agree with you on the execution. And I mean, you know, I, I you know, it should not be a super tiebreaker. It should not be a small draw. If you're going to do it, do it right. I mean, this this is a little bit like you know, hey, I won the I won the uh, Olympic gold medal in mixed doubles. Oh yeah, you know who'd you beat? You know, well, how many God, how many rounds was? It? Oh, two rounds. <laughs> you know, who'd you? You know, you, you almost can't. You almost have to get. It's like the, everybody gets a medal mentality. But uh, you know, obviously, that's stretching it. But, you know, really, I think that, you know, yeah, it's neither fish nor fowl, and I think that's wrong. I do really support mixed doubles as a a great event. I think it's a wonderful event. You know, I wish the Hopman Cup that January – Exhibition, you know, we're, we're kind of a you know we're real real serious kind of a thing, or that they found a way to make mixed doubles a little more important than it is because you know how often can men and women do something together and they do it and they play all out on the court. I think it's a wonderful wonderful thing and and, and an underutilized resource. But I I agree with you that
0: if they're going to do it in the Olympics, they ought to do it right. The um, I think uh, the Indian Wells term actually is, is um, turning into that doubles tournament per se this Olympic year for the mixed reason, but altogether players getting some time. You see a lot of singles players playing doubles there. That's the event I have a feeling that um, is kind of looking to strike on that and may do that down the road. Um, talking about, of course, Wimbledon here hosting the games, uh, one bit of news last week that I thought was a very welcome piece of news was that the Wimbledon tournament, the slam, not the Olympics, move is now moving up one week uh, moving forward. So you have now three weeks starting in 2015 between Roland Garros and Wimbledon, which I think is a good, is a great thing for players, for fans. Um, You know, I think, I think we're kind of actually seeing of the past few years, uh, the tour is kind of really recognizing and addressing this issue. I think some sensibility is kind of slowly finding its way into the tennis schedule here. What did you, you, know, what did you think about that? This is, this is obviously a thing that sort of takes a little swipe at tradition here. It's always been just two weeks between these two slams. Well, it's a welcome, it's a welcome
1: change. I don't think the tradition has really been. Uh, it's two weeks. I think that's incidental. The tradition, really, I think, was, you know, that they that they keep kept it in in a summer, you know, in a time slot that was, you know, on the British sporting calendar, which is one of their big issues and stuff. So I, I think it's, you know, you're right. It's absolutely welcome news. I think everybody wants it. I, you know, the days when you could play in Paris and then drift on over to England and play a little patty ball you know, on on the grass courts and win another, you know, win another under the table, you know, uh, gets their tickets at a Fred Perry store is no longer, you know, that, you know, we're living in a different world now and everyone's been discontented with this, you know, lineup, you know, as it's been. So that extra week really, really helps. Would another week have been good? Well, you know, yes and no. I mean, I think one of the problems a little bit is that, you know, being so unusual in that it's being Played on grass, you know Wimbledon. Are you going to create a grass court circuit leading up to Wimbledon? That's a pretty big ask because there aren't that many places that can either, you know, host a grass court tournament, certainly not create one or or, or maintain the kind of courts that are you know Wimbledon grade type grass court. So I think I think the difficulty a little bit in in getting even more distance between the two would have been. That, look, it, you know, grass is just a very special surface. This actually is probably the best solution because it gives the players a little bit of extra breathing room. The guys who go deep at Wimbledon can, you know, get the extra week of rest or to work on their games whatever they want to do. And 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 I, you know, everyone wins the 4th of July, you know, is still going to be probably in the first week of Wimbledon this time, so it's not a big thing. The other the other interesting factor here, I think, is the weather because I think the weather's going to be better. The later it is in the summer, the the better the weather's going to be. And a less chance there will be that there's going to be a lot of rain interruption. So that's, of course, everyone's going to love that.
0: I think there is actually a, a good opportunity. Obviously, grass is a, is a, you know, like you're saying, a, a very special surface. Not too many places can can hold an event of uh, you know the stature. You know, not Wimbledon stature, but really the kind of tier below there. I, I do think of like Queen's Club as you know maybe an exception to that. I do think with three weeks in between, you're going to have you know the week after Paris, the week before Wimbledon, and you have that week in the middle. I think maybe that's the week that people, perhaps it depends how things go, could get that long-awaited Grass Masters Tournament wish that I think a lot of people have been clamoring for. It, it does seem on the surface to make sense that players wouldn't have to come out right after um, Paris or exert themselves a week before Wilmington, but I do think that there's a big opportunity for that. If not, that little, that grass court circuit name is always kind of in name only, but I think that's really where you might see a little more um, transition to some more grass court tennis. That's an excellent
1: uh, point. I think what they could do, presumably, is, is make queens a proper uh, Masters event, basically, and so give it a little bit of wiggle room in front and in the back so the big guys would play it, and then that would be a pretty good solution. And then you'd have all the Nottinghams and birminghams and Surbitons and all those other little tournaments, and people
0: can play them, you know, if they're out of the Masters 1000 or if they just want to work on their games. I do wonder where Newport actually fits in. I was thinking about that this week, where that fits in because, um, you know, that may also be a um, – that's the Hall of Fame induction, but a grass court event usually held after Wimbledon. I wonder kind of how that's impacted by this as well here. So that's to all to be written on the schedules that haven't even been released yet but are surely being discussed at this point. Well, um, exactly. can bet yeah. they've talked about it. Actually, the interesting idea would be to move Newport up in front of Wimbledon. Yeah, I mean, you'd have to have, of course, players already back in the U.S. You know, perhaps those uh, early round losers at the French Open wouldn't mind getting a start on the grass back here in Rhode Island. You never know. Um, last point I wanted to make, or just topic to touch on, was another thing you wrote in your post today. Um, of the Of the many champions last week, you know, a, a week filled with tournaments, mostly small. Um, you have you had Juan Monaco as the the biggest, the most recognizable winner, I think, of the bunch for what he did in Hamburg. Um, and looking forward at what this means for Club like Monaco. Monaco with this gets into the top ten. Um, as you as you noted, he is also in the top ten with Juan Martín Del Potro. Same country, same city they grew up in. But when you're thinking about the Olympics and you know him going from clay to grass here, um, you know th- this might not be a case of someone. Being unable to transfer their skills to that service because of a player you brought up, David Ferrer, who this year Wimbledon more than held his own, beating Roddick there and showing that really kind of this long debunked myth I think that we're seeing over the past few years that that clay court experts can do just fine on grass nowadays. Well,
1: yeah, you know, I think I think Monaco certainly. Get, you know, is entitled to take a lot of inspiration and, and hope out of that. Um, you know, and you know, look, he won in Hamburg. That's an ATP 500, and he beat Tommy Haas, who's a very good, very good player who kind of goes for broke. He's the kind of guy who also could play well on grass, even though his strokes are a little bit long, his be- take backs and stuff. But uh, you know, I, I think Monaco. You know, the days when these guys have to figure, oh, you know, I'm just a clay court guy. I'm going I'm to struggle at Wimbledon, not even bother playing. A lot of these guys never played. I mean, you look at Thomas Muster record, former number one French Open champion, half the time at Wimbledon even, you know, mailed it in, just like Gustavo Korten, but I think that's really changed I think what you've got now, even Juan Martin Del Potro, I mean, the guy grew up on clay, he's obviously best on hard courts, he won the US Open his only major on hard courts, but he's he's an excellent clay core player. Been in the semis in Paris, you know. And these guys, you know, they don't they don't feel anymore that they that they have to be one trick ponies. And I think Monaco can certainly look to a Ferrer and say, you know, what he won by being really steady. He won by being a great counter puncher. He won by essentially making the passing shots because his opponents would get a little bit edgy, thinking this guy's a great, really consistent rally or a good ball striker. I better get in here and end a point on grass because I can. So he, you know, I think he's got reason to p- feel, you know. Feel really good. Having said that, I think Ferrer is the best of that group, and I think the comparisons between Monaco and Ferrer only go so far. Uh, I I think Ferrer is a, really a lot more compact player and a lot more. His, his mobility is a little bit better in Monaco's, and those are big assets on grass. But nevertheless, I think I think Monaco certainly, given the confidence dividend he just got at his back-to-back finals. You know, he loses to Pusarvich and Stuttgart, and now he wins in Hamburg. I think he ought to go to the Olympics. You know, nothing to lose, playing with house money. Life is good. I'm in the top 10. He could do some damage.
0: Sounds like the kind of guy you've described for the past week or so as a player who really catches that Olympic lightning in a bottle and, and you know, does go pretty deep and, and kind of goes against convention in a way. We'll yeah, see. and when you when you look at what happens with these, you know, when you look at what happens in the Olympics, like as I as I keep writing,
1: basically, fifty percent of the gold medalists in the Olympics have never won a Grand Slam and were never number one, uh, and have no shot at it either. It's not like they're active players still. So you're looking at, uh, you know, you're looking at the Olympics as a kind of a crazy, you know. Anything goes, kind of a thing. Uh, the fact that they keep playing tournament tennis right up to the eve of the Olympics is, is, uh, you know, is an important part of that. I mean, look, Philippe, Philippe Kohlschreiber could beat anyone on grass. He's a great, he's a terrific grass court player. But, you know, Kohlstrap is almost taking himself out, as we discussed before, out of the mix. So now, you know, that this opens up all kinds of holes. And so, you know, these, you know, and, and Nadal being out too now, that's another big hole in there. So I, you know, I, I think you're really looking at kind of a real shootout there. And that means that everybody, including a Juan Monaco, has got a great shot.
0: You and I will be back on Friday for another podcast. I, I do know the topic. I think it will be a uh, fairly heavily debated one in one of your racket scientist posts coming up this week. And for any of you at home who want to get in touch with us about this podcast, future ones, send your emails to podcast at tennis.com. We'll get you in on the recording here, of course. So, uh, Pete, thanks again. Ed McGrogan, tennis.com podcast. You've been enjoying Tennis.com's weekly podcast. Thanks for listening. For all the latest news and events, head over to Tennis.com.